Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Welcome to RUF. Uh, glad that y'all are here tonight. I know it's week five, and it's that point in the middle of the quarter when you have a lot going on, and um, I'm glad that you're here. And if I don't know you, I would love to meet you. I'd love to buy you a cup of coffee. Please introduce yourself to me afterwards. Um, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount this quarter. It's this passage, this three, these three chapters in the middle of Matthew that are like Jesus' kind of full manuscript of a sermon. And Josh just read for us one of the hardest things uh, Jesus ever says, if not the hardest. And I want to start by talking actually about verse 48 before we get into it, because it ends with, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I want to start with that because that tells us a little bit about the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. What it doesn't say is, you must be perfect so that your Father will accept you, uh, so that you can earn your way into His favor. It actually assumes God is your heavenly Father. Jesus is addressing God's people and he's saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what he's saying is this, this is what it looks like to be in the family of God. Not this is what earns your place in the family of God. Jesus is not talking about status or salvation right here. He's talking about what it looks like to be in the family of God. Um, This past week, one of our girls has been, Shelby has been asking me about um, when she's going to get an iPhone. And she really, really wants an iPhone because we all know iPhone is like shalom, the biblical principle of shalom, like enshrined into one physical object, right? And that's new heavens and new earth concentrated into uh, small handheld electronic. And that's what she believes. And the reason, one of the reasons that she argues or kind of makes her case for an iPhone is she lists off all her classmates who have one. And she starts with the expected kids, the kids you know are going to have them. And then she's, she, she's, in, she's smart, she knows what to do. And then she starts going, but like, even Sajin has one. And she starts listing the ones that there's no way they could have an iPhone. But even Sajin has an iPhone, right? And it's a great conversation to have because she's appealing to this idea. Everyone else has one, therefore I should have one. And then what I tell her is, Shelby, you're not everyone else. You're a wood. And what I want you to learn, and we have a really serious conversation about it, is my goal is to teach you how to be a wood, not how to be like everyone else. And there's a, there's a wood culture. Woods wear green a lot. You might have noticed that. Uh, woods are grocers. We've been grocers for over a century now. Um, this, this is just weird stuff. This is part of what it means to be a wood. Woods cheer for Alabama, obviously. Um, and woods don't just do anything because everybody else is doing it. We're not adhering to everybody else's culture. So we have to ask the question of, when do woods buy iPhones? That's our question. Unfortunately, wood buy, woods buy iPhones much later in life than Sajin's parents. But... <laughs> What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's saying, this is your new family. And this is what life in the family looks like. And he's saying, when he says, be perfect as your father is perfect, he's saying, this is what it looks like in your new family. He's not saying, this is how you get in. You get in by grace. 
Uh, it, it is, God sets His name on you. The act of baptism is this external sign that, re, that signifies how God sets His name on you, the same way Elizabeth and I set our name on Shelby. And that is her entrance into our family, and that's our entrance into God's family. Status is not the issue here, whether or not you're in the family. I already t- Shelby already knows who she is. She actually is a wood, but at the same time, I'm also teaching her how to act like a wood. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, you are God's people. Now, here's what it looks like to live out that identity that it's actually already established of you. So let's pray before we consider this text. Father, thank you for these words. They are hard, and I don't want them to mean what they mean. None of us do. Uh, We want to water them down, and we want to make them accessible and easy and help us feel good about the times we do some hard things. But I don't think that's what you have to teach us. So when you say love your enemies, I pray now that you would bring to mind all the people we can't stand and all the people that have hurt us and all the people we feel just being angry at. And that we would hear the words of Jesus when you have to say into those situations. Be with us, Holy Spirit, we need you. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, So this is a passage maybe many of you heard. And this is one of the most difficult teachings in Christianity. Uh, You've heard it said, you'll love your enemy and hate your neighbor, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the first thing that you need to feel, and you're you're wasting your time tonight, and you're wasting time considering this idea, if you're not beginning to feel this right off the bat, you need to feel this is impossible. Because if you're working this around in your mind, you're realizing like, oh, maybe I need to be some kind kind of kind to some people I'm not normally kind to, you haven't grappled with this text yet. We need to feel that what Jesus seems to be saying is the exact opposite of what my instincts and my rational sense indicates. I don't instinctually, I'm not instinctually going to love my enemies. And then if I can step back from my instincts and kind of reason about it, there's no reason for loving my enemies. But if you've been here throughout the series on the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's it's important to learn from Marlo Stanfield from the fourth season of The Wire There's a lot to learn from the fourth season of The Wire. But this is one of them that has to do with the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, you think life is one way, but it's not, it's the other. And Jesus is saying that about our instincts and our feelings with regard to people that hurt us, that are real hurtful people in our lives. He's saying, you think it's one way, you have a set of instincts, a set of reasons, but it's not that way. In the kingdom of God... It's a totally different way. And he's been saying that all along in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he says, who inherits the kingdom? You think it's the really spiritually rich. It's not spiritually, it's the spiritually poor. And he says, who are the people that are going to rejoice in the gospel? It's not the really happy people, it's actually the mourners. Who are the people who are going to inherit the earth? It's not going to be the powerful, it's going to be the meek. He's always saying, it's not the way you think, it's the other way. And in this area of interpersonal conflict... He's saying, we want it to be one way, but it's not. It's the other. And before we kind of dive into the text, I want to make this caveat in Jesus' teaching. What this is not is this is not a place to uh, discuss just war theory on a societal level. That's not what this is about. Jesus is addressing individuals and their individual lives. This also doesn't mean that you don't call the police when the law is broken. That's not about this. This is not about addressing self-defense or defending um, the weak Um, or the helpless in abusive or violent situations. This passage is not addressing that. 
This is about the day-to-day relationships we all live in that have conflict in them. uh, With friends and with enemies. And in point of fact, in situations where there's physical abuse or there's forms of sexual abuse that occur, it's actually unloving of your enemy not to report them. This is not saying don't do anything if you've been hurt. It's actually the appropriate manner of loving your enemy in those situations is to report them. Because by not reporting them, you both put other people at risk and also you allow that person to continue to live thinking, oh, there, are no longer, there aren't repercussions and it's not hurtful for me to live this way. They're absolutely appropriate to love your enemy by bringing negative consequences into their life. This, isn't, this passage, though, is really actually not about that. This passage is about the day-to-day conflict we have in our relationships. But it's a tough passage to grapple with. And it starts out, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. How do we handle that? And don't resist doesn't simply mean lay down. It means don't contend with, don't strive with, don't fight with the person who brings evil on you. Nothing in our life, nothing in our instincts, and nothing in our sense of justice prepares us for that statement. It's not normal. No one can instinctually identify with that statement and say, yeah, Exactly. That's how I've been trying to live. That's my instinct. That makes sense. Because here's what our natural instinct most often is. Our natural instinct is when hate and evil comes our way, is to dole it back out on that person. We love it. It's going on, right, and on, and on some, in some sense, on campus kind of all the time with campus issues. You can watch all the different issues going on, on campus and you can see the back and forth. And what it is is this. Someone says or does something that you know is insulting and stupid. Right? So what do we do? Either by public channels or by private channels, you hit it back to them. Right? They're ignorant and they're an idiot. And this is why. And you can explain. Right? And then they hear about it. And what card do they have next? They have their deck and they're like, oh, I know what I'm going to play next. Here's what they play next, right? Well, you're a bigger idiot, and you're more ignorant, and here's why. Ah, but they didn't know what your secret weapon is for round three, right? Our secret weapon for round three is, no, 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 no. You're a bigger ignorant idiot than I could ever imagine, right? And then it goes back and forth, and that's our life of conflict, right? As it just goes back and forth, and we're not making progress. And Martin Luther King is actually, I read a lot of him this week thinking about this, And he made this point that hate for hate, responding to hate with hate, only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. And if I hit you, and then you hit me, and then I hit you back, and you hit me back and go on, we think that the way that you win, right, in your interpersonal conflict, and your disagreements, and the people you can't stand, and even with the people who have hurt you and they've initiated the conflict, the way you win is by hitting back stronger. And Martin Luther King says this, True strength that actually ends the conflict doesn't hit harder. Real strength absorbs the blow and doesn't return it. What if your response was, Hey, can I buy your lunch and hear your story? How are you doing? What could I do for you? What if you responded to someone's insult that way? 
You know what that would be? That would be really weird. Nobody would take you seriously at first. Because what we think about right now, and maybe you even think, like, that sounds nice. That's like an interesting ideal. That I, maybe you even think, like, I'm going to intend to aspire to that. I'll tell you what intending to aspire to that will get you. It's not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to happen. What if instead of raging and worrying about winning, we did what Jesus calls us to do in verse 44. We prayed for our enemies. And did what Luke says when he actually summarized this sermon in his book. And he says, and actually do some good things for them. That doesn't mean intend to do good things. That actually means get your hands dirty. Act in the world doing an actual thing for them. We like having, we, a lot of times we think loving our enemies is just having a positive disposition towards them. Or at least not showing our passive aggressive sentiments toward them. That's not what loving your enemy is in the Bible. Loving your enemy is praying for them and then doing actual things. It means your body moves and it moves in such a manner that you do something that benefits them. It's not just thinking about this as a nice idea in your room, right? You haven't heard Jesus until you've dawned on you, okay, that's impossible, that's never going to happen. And so the next question is this. Is it possible? And I'm not, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this is really the most important point of the sermon before we, we're going to go through some of these things, is the possibility to begin to change into that kind of person will only come if you get better at wandering. W-O-N-D-E-R, not W-A-N-D-E-R. Wondering, maybe. I think that's how you'll say it. I'm from the South. It's all getting confusing to me. But change is only going to happen if you get better at wondering. This kind of living is only possible if you're actually captured in wonder. If you're having an existential experience of wonder about God's love for you. And especially the fact that God's love for us is undeserved. If your heart is coming undone, if it's getting nervous, if it's fluttering over the idea of God's grace with which He saves, that He forgives us, which is an insane idea, the more you explore it, that He doesn't demand recompense for sin, but He accepts us, and not because we're acceptable, but actually because He is accepting. And we think the word accept means agree, and it doesn't. He really disagrees with us about a lot and still accepts us. And He sheds His own blood for us. Loving your enemy, the only way it can become even a remote possibility is if we start to say with John in 1 John 3, when he is, he's, he's bursting, his heart is bursting, and he says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. That is his heart exploding in wonder and inviting you to do the same wondering at the grace of God, at Him saying, come and see how amazing this is. The way one pastor said it is, the key litmus test, if you want to boil down the litmus test to discern the difference between a real Christian and a religious person, is this. A real Christian is a person who says over and over again, it's an absolute miracle that God loves me. It is a miracle that I'm a Christian. I can't believe it. A religious person tries really, really hard to make God owe them through the observance of Christian rules and lifestyle. 
You can tell the difference between a Christian and a religious person when bad things happen. Because a religious person feels, God owes me, I've been good, I've tried really hard to be good, I've been better than most, I've been better than a lot of non-Christians, and then there are also a lot of Christians that I really can't stand, and I'm pretty sure I'm better than them too. So, you're going to let this happen in my life after all of that? In my schooling, in my family, God owes me. That's the heart of a religious person when bad things happen. A Christian says, things have not gone how I've wanted, but God has been so gracious to me. His love is still a miracle that amazes me. I know I can trust Him because He's so good that even when I can't understand my circumstances and they seem to be falling apart, I still wonder at the cross how much He loves me. Change is only possible if we live in perpetual wonder of God's undeserving grace. This is impossible any other way. Conflict and tension will persist as long as God's grace is not our constant theme. Professor at Yale said the reason that we can't love our enemies is this, because I exclude my enemies from the community of humans, and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. And what grace allows us to do is it allows us to actually honestly say of ourselves, I'm not just a member of the community of sinners. I actually know myself better than y'all do. I should be president. Grace allows us to look at our enemies and say, I actually know why you're like that. It actually allows us to look at our enemies and say, you are a bad person. And I know why you're like that. Because I'm just like you. The wonder of the grace of God is the only thing that can change the way you relate to our enemies. Because grace says what Paul says in Romans 5. Maybe for a good person someone will die, but God demonstrates His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If change is possible, the only way this kind of stuff can actually happen is if the grace of God becomes your constant theme. In your heart, in your imagination, in your mind. Next thing I want to talk about is what kind of change then are we talking about? When you get grace, you come to these issues, and you specifically come to this issue of loving your enemy, not resisting somebody when they do something bad to you, and then even somehow deferring or doing something nice for them in return. When you get grace, here's how you don't respond to these kinds of guides. You don't respond... By asking how far, how much, where is the line, when is it enough? If you understand grace, those questions won't pop up in your mind. Because Jesus is taking the letter of the Old Testament law and he's pointing beyond it to see the spirit of the law. What he's doing, he's actually talking about Deuteronomy 19 when he goes through this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing. And what that is, is a specific local law for civil magistrates in Old Testament Israel that was given for the purpose of simply as a preventative measure for worst case scenario. Saying that in a civil court, when, you are, when a civil magistrate is trying to figure out justice, we need to make sure justice doesn't overreact. And what Jesus is doing is saying, you've taken this civil law and don't understand and you've made this actually a way to justify getting revenge on each other and executing justice on each other. And you understand the heart of the law is like, this is a preventative measure for worst case scenario, what I'm calling you to. Because what he actually has called Old Testament Israel to and calls his people to now is actually 
love your enemies. And this is what he's actually calling us to do, is to be a wholly different kind of person. To stop calculating how much is enough. Because how much is enough is still saying, at what point do I get let off the hook so I can pursue my own interest? Which means at the end of the day, you're still guarding yourself. And what Jesus is calling us to, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is qualitative change, not quantitative change. Quantitative change is when we change our behavior, but our heart remains the same. And so the questions, how much, how long, how far, where's the line, they all arise from thinking that Jesus is calling you to quantitatively change, to do less bad things and more good things. And that's fueled by the desire to look religious, But it doesn't get that the gospel is not about getting people to look religious. Jesus is about changing people all the way through. So that when the gospel gets around and bounces around in your life and in your heart, it starts to dawn on you and other people start to see like, they're a different person. It's not that their scorecard has changed. They're doing less bad things and more good things. They're different. How much and how long and how far and where's the line all stem from a heart that's still actually saying at the end of the day, but what about me? At what point can I feel comfortable to have met the standards of Christian religion and then get back to my regular scheduled program of me? Because you want to appease the outward demands of religion because maybe you think there's some benefit to that, but you want limits on it and how much it can demand from you, so you can know when it's alright to get back to being concerned about yourself. And what Jesus does is He speaks right into that mindset that we have. How much, how much till I can call it off? Right? He speaks right in that mindset and says, whatever you think a reasonable limit is, run, run way, way past that. And keep running until you realize, in order to do this, I have to become a totally different person. Until it dawns on you, okay, to actually live that way, I'd have to care about them. This is, by the way, not just our neighbor, and not even just somebody we like. I'd have to care about my enemy as much as I naturally think and care about myself. And I naturally think and care about myself 24-7. Okay, that's impossible. Now you get it. you got to be a new person. The gospel doesn't aim simply for our actions to change. It aims for our instincts and our reasons to change. Another way of saying it, the way Ezekiel says it in Ezekiel 11 and 36, is that we need new hearts. That thing inside of us that guides all of our thinking and feeling. Paul says it will be so wholly different that you're called a new creation. Jesus tells Nicodemus, it's going to be like being born again. Like you're, There's ways that you're the old you, but you feel like a new me is happening. And the reason so many Christians and religious people feel so at odds with our Christian experience, where we have, this, we have this external profession that we're trying to live out, and we're trying to convince ourselves we're a Christian, but we're not sure, and we're saying some things, but on the inside we feel really at odds with that, is because we're trying to behave just enough to either make Jesus or Christian culture happy. And instead of seeing that the gospel's goal is to make you a totally different kind of person. So what does that new you look like in the kingdom of God? And we'll take a couple of moments and just go through these things uh, phrase by phrase. Jesus starts out, here's an example. If anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus 
is not talking about getting mugged. That's what everybody's worried about. Right? He's talking about an insult, and he actually gives us a detail here that's pretty key. He says, if anybody slaps you on the right cheek, left-handed people, you're going to feel like kind of on the sideline right here. But what he's talking about is the normal practice of you backhand someone with your right hand hits their right cheek. That is a slap that's an insult. This is about being disrespected. This is about being dishonored. This is about being insulted. This is about when a friend lied to you or lied about you, causing other people to think about you differently. This is about when friends left you out. And you wonder, am I their friend? Why why am I not a part of the group of friends that gets invited to the beach trip or the Tahoe trip? Right? Do they have separate friend classes? This is about insult. This is about being canceled on at the last minute. This is about people being 30 minutes late, 45 minutes late. This is about people canceling an hour after the appointment was supposed to start or the lunch was supposed to start. This is about all the ways we insult each other. And Jesus is saying in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God in God's family, our DNA and our heart is not about insisting on defending ourselves and executing justice. It's not about the sometimes subtle, subtle ways right, we can insult people back. And also the not so subtle ways by which we either denigrate other people or we build ourselves up. Uh, uh, in our house right now, it's kind of beautiful because the girls don't have any subtlety. They just respond with, you're the meanest person in the world. It's like, wow, that's just direct. It's clear. Like, there's no, you know, like in some sense, we know where their heart is. You kind of appreciate that, that they don't have any subtlety at this point, right? But we have all these different ways of passively, aggressively attacking people, the way we talk about them. You know your methods. We all have our own. We have ways that we also lie to ourselves and convince ourselves we're this honorable person, but are still attacking them, still harboring bitterness and entertaining it, right? What this means, what turning the other cheek means, that what drives you is no longer what's fair for me to do and say to them. Because it means that your concern is not you. And even, even rather, if you ever even address the offense, maybe it would all, the only reason you would even address the offense is to help them see, hey, I don't know if you know it or not, but sometimes you hurt people when you say these kinds of things. You're not trying to punish them. You're actually seeking their well-being and wisdom and even growth and maturity for their sake, not to get them back. What if all you did was set up a coffee in order to intentionally say, hey, when that happened, I was hurt by that, and I don't want that hurt to break our relationship because I think you're awesome. What if you said that? Have you ever not responded to a form of insult. If you've ever done that, if you've ever not responded or seen it, or you've been the insulter and had someone not respond in kind, it's breathtaking. Because it removes the angst and the tension of the relationship immediately. Especially if there's actually even some truth in the insult and you accept it. Peace and joy and happiness have never ever been the conclusion of responding in kind. Peace, joy, happiness, mutual enjoyment of each other has never in the history of ever been the conclusion of responding to someone in kind. 
Responding in kind just further damages the already broken relationship and it poisons the future of it. What if when someone insulted you, brought disrespect upon you, you cared about them instead of your pride? That's what Jesus is calling us to. He then goes on to say, If anyone would take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This is not about pride. This is about rights. Your cloak was actually something... This is a little bit of historical context here as well. Your cloak is something that's rightfully yours that could never be taken in lawsuits. Assets were thought of differently this time. Your clothes were one of the assets you could be sued for. But a cloak was a protected asset. It was like it was in an LLC. That was just something that was standard practice. You can't take someone's cloak. You can take everything else, but they actually get the um, dignity of retaining their cloak. So uh, you had a legal right to keep it regardless. And Jesus is saying, if someone is demanding things of you, the law of love doesn't demand its rights. And the focus in the life of the Christian is not always demanding your rights. The roommate. We're just killing our roommates all over the place and they're killing us, right? That keeps the light on. This is your room too. They have to adapt to your sleeping pattern that, that sexiles you. This is your room too, right? This is actually you in their room, not your, their room and their boyfriend's room or their girlfriend's room, right? You have your rights here. You're legitimate, right? Comes in late. Their stuff is taking over the room. It's a mess. You have rights. You do. This is not all about them. What if your focus was not about on your rights? What if your focus was not on what you could get for you? This is what's, you know, at Stanford, we want to change the world. We have a very high sense of our altruism here. But at the same time, when people leave their clothes in the dryer, we lose it. What if you folded their clothes? Not passive-aggressively, like, huh, I'm going to show them by doing something nice. But like, hey, I don't know where this person is, but wouldn't it be awesome to walk back and have your clothes folded? Instead of asserting your rights... That dryer's mine. They shouldn't do this. Their clothes are going on the nasty floor. Right? So we want to do. Maybe some of us do. Everybody put your head down, close your eyes. Who's done that? Right? Okay. It's all right. There's grace for that. Probably. But. For some of us, our enemy is our parent. And when you feel that anger, what you feel rightly is, you betrayed my rights as a child. Because children shouldn't have to endure that. What if your response was compassion? Wow, it feels impossible now, doesn't it? Because here's the thing about parents. I'll tell you from being both sides of it. There's a certain type of person that becomes a parent. There's a very specific group of people that become parents, and it's this. It's people like you become parents. And what that means is when you become a parent, guess what? You know how you don't feel like you have it together to be a parent? When you're a parent, you're not going to feel like you have it together to be a parent. You know how you feel insecure now and you think parents shouldn't feel insecure? Guess what? When you're a parent, you're going to feel insecure. When you feel confused now, when you feel carried around by your own angers and your own frustrations and your own jealousies, guess what? That's how you're going to feel as a parent. You know what you're going to do? You're going to hurt your child. All of you will. All of us do. And that doesn't make it okay. But every parent screws it up, and we, every parent betrays the right of their children, and we're wrong, and we're guilty. And we are scared, and we are sad. Did you know your parents are scared and sad? 
What if we as children move toward our parents in compassion instead of away from them in hate? The heart that is obsessed with rights, what is rightfully mine, is still locked in on loving and protecting itself. The heart that has little regard for its own rights, isn't that sound crazy to say? The heart that has little regard for its own rights has an ability to bless even the people that abuse their rights. When you scale it up a little bit and you look at the civil rights movement, how did Martin Luther King actually make tremendous strides for civil rights? What was unique about his approach? The way he did it was by giving up his rights. The thing he precisely didn't do was fight and assert his rights. He gave up freedom. And it was giving up his rights that actually changed not just the laws of the country, not just policy, because we need more help than just policy change in this country and on this campus and everywhere, but he changed people's hearts. Right? We can make rules to restrain people, and that works a little bit. But when he gave up his rights and led people to give up their rights, he changed policy, but he also changed the heart of the country as well. Fighting for rights, you can go fight for your rights, and you may in fact gain them by fighting. But you will not win the heart of the person you contend with. If you have to fight for your rights, you may get them. But here's the one thing you will not do. You will not win the heart of the person you fight with. You'll produce a standoff where each of you is pissed at each other and you're poised waiting for the next violation of rights. But if you give up your rights, instead of contend for them, now you're getting close to the heart of Jesus. And you're getting closer to a way of living that doesn't just change laws, but it actually changes people's hearts. So, the slap is about respect. The tunic is about rights. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. This is about exploitation. Jesus speaking about another practice at that time. Roman soldiers at any time could conscript any civilian to carry their gear for up to a mile. Now, it was a limitation to keep them from abusing civilians. So, he's speaking right in that context. They know what he's talking about. And that was a limit to protect the people. So already that law feels kind of oppressive. And Jesus is speaking right into exploitation right here. And he's saying, what if your approach to someone taking advantage of you is to seek their well-being, is to help them? To go another mile, to carry their water another mile. I'm sure no one's experienced this in a group project here. Right? There's There's never inequity in group projects. Everybody works the total even amount. Right? Pretty much flawlessly across the entire Stanford student population. What if your response wasn't, I'm going to kill them, I'm going to ask the professor for them not to get the grit. You you create all these narratives, all these ways of approaching it to make sure somehow they get something. What if your response is, I can carry this if I needed to. For them. What if you weren't simply taken advantage of, but rather you gave yourself more than was expected. You gave of yourself more than was expected, even to somebody who didn't deserve it. What if instead, I feel used, they're using me, this is not fair, you responded with, hey, what more could I do? When someone demands too much, you give them more, with love. And really what all these scenarios are doing in essence is they're telling us what the limit is. 
the principle that sets the limit is not, hey, if, you know what, if they're nice, if they respond really well to the way you've acted, as long as it doesn't cost you this much time, energy, resources, dollars, as long as I'm not embarrassed when I do this, as long as I'm not kind of ashamed, the limit is, here's the limit, whatever serves them best. The way John Stott said it is this, the only limit to Christian generosity will be a limit which love itself may impose. The limit is not guided by self-protection, but the other person's well-being. Verse 42 really summarizes it all. Give to the one who begs, and don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. The posture of the Christian is not one of self-defense when we're disrespected. It's not how the heart of Christ responds. We see Him not respond in self-defense when He's disrespected, when He's accused, when His name is shamed. The Christian response is not the assertion of rights when your rights have been violated. That's not the heart of Christ. Christ is innocent. His rights are being violated. And He keeps His mouth shut. The, the Christian response is not to give only as much as you have to, but keep back the rest for yourself. Jesus gives all of Himself, every last thing He has. And as long as we think it's about coming back when we're disrespected and asserting our rights when they're violated and keeping back something for ourselves and not giving it all, those all reveal hearts that have yet to comprehend how truly otherworldly it will look to begin to live the principles of the kingdom. The heart of Christ is at work in us when self-concern and self-glory and assertion of rights all die on the altar of loving your enemy. Jesus kept quiet when he was insulted. He kept quiet when he was beaten. He didn't assert his power or his rights when he could have. And some of Jesus' very last words on the cross was prayer for his enemies. Lord, forgive them. Those were his words to his enemies. If nothing else from tonight, at least take that away. Pray for those people in your life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Christian in Germany during World War II, was executed for opposing the Nazis, said this. This is what it looks like to pray for your enemy. Put yourself side by side with your enemy. Don't imagine them opposing you, but imagine you standing beside them as their advocate and plead to God for them. I think he understood a little bit what it felt like to have someone be his enemy. And... and Real quickly, it's important people, this is an important point. Jesus says, by the way, loving people who like you is not special at all. Right? There's nothing special about it. It requires nothing of you. And it's usually pretty self-affirming. I'm not saying don't love people who are like you and who like you. But what he's saying is there's nothing distinctly Christian about liking your friends. Rather, gospel love is going out and loving people who disrespect you, who defraud you, who deny you, and who exploit you. And only a completely changed heart can do that. And only that kind of love can actually change anybody else. And that, in fact, is how Jesus is also changing us. Because we're His enemy. And He's done all these things for us. Let's pray.